Start selling on Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash CNN for a $1 per month trial. I want to start with a headline. The Democrats are going to hang on to the Senate. Over the weekend, CNN made projections in both Arizona and Nevada, meaning Democrats hold a 50 to 49 seat edge over Republicans. Even if Republicans win the Senate runoff in Georgia in a few weeks, Vice President Kamala Harris will still have a tie-breaking vote. But the Senate wasn't the only bright spot for Democrats over the course of a very surprising election week. While the press and the pundits are predicting a giant red wave, uh, it didn't happen. Remember, many forecasts predicted that Democrats would get absolutely trounced. Now, Republicans may very well win the House, and they did win some key races. But it's clear this was not the overwhelming mandate they had been hoping for. John. Give us your analysis. Not what the Republicans needed. That's the simple analysis. That's the headline analysis. My guest this week is CNN's John King. You may have seen him on TV throughout the week manning CNN's magic wall. You know, that big touchscreen map with all the vote totals. Today, we're going to take a look at what the results we do have tell us about the American people and the future of Washington. From CNN, this is One Thing. I'm David Ryan. So, John, you've been at the Magic Wall all week. Glad we could pull you away for a few minutes. Um, we're talking on Thursday afternoon. And as we tape this, the Senate, Georgia already, we know, is going to run off. Uh, in the House, Republicans are inching closer to the 218 seats they need for control. But it could be many days before that's decided. And if Republicans do take control, like most expect, the majority will be much smaller than anticipated. Do I have all that right? You have all that right, and I think you're getting at, even though we don't know the final results, sort of the fascination of what we're going to get here. Uh, after two years and billions of dollars spent, we went into the midterm elections with Democrats with a very narrow majority in the House and an evenly divided Senate. We are going to come out of these midterms. We don't know the final numbers yet. Somebody, most likely the Republicans, will have a very narrow House majority, and the Senate will be about evenly split. Billions of dollars, two years of campaigning, and in terms of the numbers, not much is going to change in Washington. But that can be very deceptive. History says the Democrats should have lost a lot more seats than that. But you can defy history and still get a pretty miserable day-to-day -day existence. A Republican House would change President Biden's life immeasurably. Right. And so you mentioned kind of the narrative going to election. It was that the environment really favored Republicans because, A, the president's party almost always loses the midterms. And B, the issues really favored the GOP, rising prices, inflation, you know, that kind of thing. But Democrats had a better night than most expected. Do we know why the, this red wave that people have been talking about didn't really materialize? I think there are a number of reasons that we know already. And then there will be other things we learn as you get out from under the dust, if you will, and you get to study more deeply. Uh, but I do, I do think we know this, that number one, we've known this the last several years, how much does history apply to today's volatile politics, right? So the historic midterm average, if you go back to Ronald Reagan, you lose 30 House seats. If you're the incumbent president in your first midterm is 30 House seats. If you want to fast forward that, and think, no, let's start it more recently when our polarized politics began, you'd get to Bill Clinton, and that's 37 seats. Joe Biden's not going to lose. The Democrats are not going to lose 37 seats in the House. Math is not there for that. Now, is that just because he defied history? It's partly that. Uh, they draw the House districts differently now. So there are fewer competitive seats out there. So it's, it's harder, if you will. You need a huge tsunami environment to get that big of a swing. And, and then I think the part we still have to study about this climate 
You mentioned the national headwinds. Look, there's no question. The American people are exhausted. Uh, two and a half, almost three years of COVID now. And then inflation comes along and hits them like a two by four in the head. Uh, a lot of these competitive contests are out in the western part of the United States where gas prices are even higher than the national average. Um, and so you can't generalize sometimes. You have to go state by state because of the races. So what happened? Why didn't the Democrats get shellacked, to borrow the Obama term, um, from 2010? Well, I think in part, the American people are queasy, uh, but they're risk averse too, because they're anxious, because they're queasy. I, I, I was, I'm viewing this as more I look at the results as you walk into a restaurant after you've had a few days where you're not feeling very well. You tend to order meat and potatoes, not spicy, because you're not quite sure your stomach's ready for spicy. And I think a number of these Republican candidates were too spicy. Too extreme, you're saying. Maybe it's extreme. Uh, maybe, it's, maybe they're too Trumpy. Maybe they're January 6th deniers. So I think you have to go race by race. Uh, but they were just, it was just too much. It was just too much. I can't handle this right now. Right. Because, you know, in a place like Michigan, where abortion was literally on the ballot, Democrats did really well up and down the ballot. But in a place like New York, we saw Republicans take a bunch of House seats. So is that kind of what you're, what you're speaking to? That is what I'm speaking to. Uh, the abortion on the ballot, no doubt, helped in Michigan. And I think, again, uh, Democratic campaigns focusing on you might be mad at us, but think about them. Uh, think about what they will do. Midterms are normally a referendum. I do think in some places Democrats were successful in making it a choice uh, and, and telling people, look, I, I know you're mad at me. Be mad at me, but don't kick me out because if you kick me out, that's what you're going to get and you don't like that even more or that's bigger than this. Inflation will pass. It sucks, mm -hmm. but it will pass. You don't want you know, the legislature to completely ban abortion. That's one example. I think New York also gets you to another point, which is um, Democrats are doing better in the really competitive places. And maybe they got surprised in places where they got too comfortable. Right. So you look at a traditional big blue state like New York, a, a governor's race that turned more competitive than people thought. Lee Zeldin lost. Kathy Hochul will now get a full term as governor. But Lee Zeldin kept it close enough that the Democrats are going to lose several House seats in New York that they're going to, for the next two years, be thinking about, wow, we should have seen this coming or we should have at least prepared. It's the old cliche, right? You know, hope for the best, prepare for the worst. Uh, I think in some of these New York congressional races, they did not prepare for the worst and they got thumped. So on the Republican side, then, this was not a great night for former President Donald Trump and the candidates he kind of supported. What kind of Republican Party is viable right now? Do the results that we do have tell us anything about that? If you could answer that question, <laughs> uh, you would be a magician. Uh, you, you would be. That's why I'm asking yes, you. you would be the Wizard of Oz if you could answer that question because you see it right now. There is a bloodletting. There's no way to deny Donald Trump got fired Tuesday night. You have this divorce Trump movement now that's very public in the Republican Party. My advice, if anybody in the Herschel Walker team wanted to listen, would be to make three successful phone calls. One is to tell Donald Trump to stay out of Georgia for four weeks. He's toxic and he would do nothing to help the ticket. They're saying, run away as fast as you can. Close the doors. Lock him out. Change the locks. Put an extra lock on the inside. Don't let him in. I think my party needs to face the fact that if uh, fealty to Donald Trump is the primary criteria for selecting candidates, we're probably not going to do really well. How long is that going to last? That's one of my questions. Because this happened after January 6th. Right. This happened after January 6th. Everybody said, we're done. Look at Lindsey Graham. I'm done with Donald Trump. Count to 10. Lindsey Graham's golfing with Donald Trump. Uh, Kevin McCarthy. This is Donald Trump's responsibility. Count to 12. Kevin McCarthy's at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, so now you're seeing it among Republican politicians, some, not all, 
I'll come back to Kevin McCarthy in a minute. You're seeing it even more so among the Trump-friendly conservative media. Florida is where woke goes to die. You know, whether it's the Wall Street Journal editorial board or the New York Post or um, Fox News, all owned by Rupert Murdoch, by the way. Um, you know, you see this, okay, we're done here. He's toxic. We need to move on. As the New York Post covered this morning, the headline says, the future. I am skeptical that that lasts. I mentioned I'd come back to Kevin McCarthy. He needs to win an election as speaker in a couple of weeks. He has many fewer Republicans in the room for that election than he thought he was going to have. So he still needs Donald Trump. So watch this play out. Some forces of the Republican Party saying we're done and this time we mean it. And Kevin McCarthy, who says, I need Marjorie Taylor Greene's vote or I'm not going to be speaker. I need Jim Jordan, the Freedom Caucus. And if Donald Trump calls them up and say, don't give Kevin McCarthy your votes. Kevin McCarthy's not getting their votes. So this drama is just beginning. So that kind of brings us to the Washington now. And let's say that Kevin McCarthy is in the running for House Speaker. What does a Republican-led House look like? What is kind of on their agenda in the new year? Well, they've been quite public about some of it. It means there will be um, on the House side, there will be hearings, oversight hearings or Judiciary Committee hearings or a special committee to investigate Hunter Biden. Um, You will have a possible impeachment of the Homeland Security Secretary uh, because Republicans disagree with Biden administration immigration policy and I know the American people out there listening, thinking, you know, rolling their eyes or just that's this is why a lot of Americans hate Washington. Um, Americans of both parties or independents hate Washington because they think this is just all politics and not about them, not relevant to their lives. But you're going to see, you absolutely will see very aggressive oversight. I think the separate question is, do they have an inflation plan? Will they actually try to pass something? Yeah. What about the legislation? Yeah. Do they have an immigration plan beyond Biden's terrible? I'm fascinated to see if the policy people in the Republican Party think, okay, we've shoved Trump to the sidelines. We have a chance to reclaim our party and have a debate about traditional Republican values, or does this become the Trump loyalists and acolytes in the House Republican Party who are eager, literally eager, full of adrenaline for revenge? Do they dominate or do we get a reset? That's a big question for January. Can you describe your relationship with Mr. McCarthy? How often do you speak to him? What do you think of him? I think he's a Republican leader, and uh, I haven't had much of occasion to talk to him, but I will be talking. And that leads me to my my next question, is if those policy discussions are being had, what kind of reception are they going to get from President Biden on that? We heard him come out uh, in his midterm press conference. What what was kind of his view as how he would approach a Republican-led House? He was careful. As I have throughout my career, I'm going to continue to work across the aisle. He said that, uh, you know, I'm available. My door is open. I look forward to meeting with you. Let's try to get things done. And I'm open to any good ideas. I want to be very clear. I'm not going to support any Republican proposal that's going to make inflation worse, for example. He's not going to give up his, you know, he's not, oh, you know, I just passed the infrastructure bill. You guys don't like it. Here, let's take it away. That's not going to happen. The president was very clear about that. The things that he's most proud of, he's not going to negotiate. Can he bring Republicans into the room on that debt limit and talk about some spending reductions elsewhere um, that help the Republicans? It's, it, are we going to be in a you got to give to get environment, right? I will give you some things that I don't like. I will eat my peas as long as you don't try to rip at this. 
you know, look, I can't control what they're going to do. All I can do is continue to try to make life better for the American people. That's a fascinating test, and I'll give you two examples. It did not happen in the Obama years. Uh, The Obama agenda essentially stalled when the Republicans first took the House in 2010. I was covering the Clinton White House back in the 90s, and something very different happened. Uh, The Republicans took the House in 1994, and even though Bill Clinton was impeached, even though his relationship with Newt Gingrich politically was frayed, they were two policy guys, and they actually got stuff done. They actually got welfare reform done. They got some other things done. So there are two models, if you will. Our recent history would suggest it's naive to think it's going to work this time, but I always keep an open mind. So, John, I guess I'm wondering, and, you know, still more votes to count, but after all this, where do the parties go from here? I got to imagine it's kind of like a gut check moment for both sides, right? You know, the ideological and the generational fights in both parties are about to unfold. Uh, But it'll be interesting uh, because, you know, sometimes Washington is a daycare center. Uh, Sometimes they are children. Sometimes it's really frustrating to watch grown adults behave like children and not be able to have conversations. But sometimes when we're talking about the polarization and the divide, we should actually respect that this is a big, complicated country. This election just told us that. And so, you know, people sometimes vote because they're a D or an R. Sometimes they vote because there's a factory in their town. Sometimes they vote because there's coal under the ground and that's people's jobs. Uh, sometimes they vote because they're, in the, you know, they're out in the prairie and those wind turbines are absolutely fine with them. But our farmers are complaining that they have another year of drought or that the trade policies suck. So sometimes we overstate the polarization. We blame the polarization for everything as opposed to, guess what? America's complicated. And we fail to understand that sometimes in Washington. I think we're going to see that blow up in these leadership elections in both parties. And then, sadly, sadly, we won't get a break of the next presidential campaign, which is going to begin on the Republican side before you know it. And there'll be some rumblings on the Democratic side as well. Do you see the magic wall in your dreams during weeks like this? Well, I don't get to sleep, so I don't have dreams. Uh, right. But in, in my little naps, yes, I do. Sometimes it's very complicated trying to do the geography thing. And I hope I do it in an understandable way, but I always think I could do it better. And so it is in your brain. And so, yes, yes, I, I see it in my sleep. Well, well, we'll let you get back to it. John King, thanks very much. My pleasure. Thank you very much. One Thing is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Paolo Ortiz and me, David Rind. Matt Dempsey is our production manager. Fez Jamil is our senior producer. Greg Peppers is our supervising producer. And Abby Fentress Swanson is the executive producer of CNN Audio. Special thanks this week to Haley Thomas, Monique Johnson, and Isabella Rivera. You can get up-to-the-minute updates on all the election results over at CNN.com or the CNN app. Thanks, as always, for listening. We'll be back next Sunday. I'll talk to you then.